you so much, Lighthouse. Thank you guys for coming. So I started writing this speech the week after Trump was elected, and I can't say I feel much better today, more than a month afterward. Um, politics has become a default topic with friends, with coworkers, and even in my dreams. There are some artists who can feel inspired by a crisis like this, and certainly some of my favorite writing has been a reaction to troubled times. Dystopian fiction depends on near dystopia. It's hard to imagine George Orwell writing 1984 during the Obama administration, even with the Edward Snowden leaks. But I'm no George Orwell. I mostly write short stories about 30-something ennui and vaguely absurdist tweets. But I didn't feel like I could tweet the number of flashback photos Cindy Crawford posts kind of depresses me the week Trump won the election. Tweets about supermodels holding on to their glory days are small in the face of the political realities we're facing. But I haven't stopped thinking of 140-character jokes. And in the past month, despite my anger and my sadness, I've continued to wake up before work to write. I can't say why. I guess at a certain point for me, or maybe always, writing wasn't really a choice. It's just what I do. And I think it's the same for tonight's speakers. For Paul, the host of Changing Denver, starting a podcast about Denver after moving here was automatic, practically the step after unpacking. He'd always loved podcasts, and to him, anyone who loves podcasts thinks about making their own. I disagree. I think a lot of podcast listeners are lazy about learning new software and hate the sound of their own voice. (laughs) The mechanics of creation can be an excuse for not making art. It can be the reason creativity can feel like a choice. But for Esther, the craft of creation comes after her need to create. As a multimedia artist, Video, sculpture, food, and stop-motion animation are all just avenues for self-expression. It's not that she has to work in any of those mediums. It's that she has a voice and the patience to figure out the craft as she goes. And voice to Victoria, a writer and tonight's Lighthouse Beacon Award winner, is the most important thing. At her workshops, the focus is on uncovering the bits of writing that reveal what makes each student unique. It's not the part she can teach, it's not the part her students choose, but it's the part that she thinks makes creation worthwhile. I don't want to end on an uplifting note about how ice cream still tastes good in the face of fascism. (laughs) Even though it does, I remain very unsettled by Trump's cabinet picks. These are troubling times. There are things we can do, donate money, donate time, organize, protest, stay engaged, We can forgive ourselves for taking imperfect action. But there are things we cannot do. We cannot change our need to create. Our speakers have to make podcasts and art and literature in their own voice. And the first voice we'll hear tonight is Paul's. Hi, everyone. It's true, I really love podcasts. Uh, How many of you all listen to podcasts and love them like me? Oh, wow. That is so great to see. I'm so happy about that. I think we should be more public about it, since it's such a solitary activity. We should be like, yes, podcasts. I love them. Um, Anyway, so when uh, Rebecca kindly asked me to do this tonight, uh, talk about Changing Denver, this is my podcast, this is the logo, I wasn't sure uh, if I had any special insights about creativity or about how I make the show, but I did come to one thing when I was thinking about it, and that's that I really believe that a good conversation is a special thing, because other people can give you something that you always want but can never quite have, and that's perspective. So when I think about a good conversation, I think about my partner of five years, Megan Ariano, because she's the person who's given me the best conversations I've ever had. She's the person who challenges me. She's the person who consults with me on every decision I make on the podcast, the person I ask about those tricky emails that you're nervous to send to that person you don't know. And so what I'm kind of getting at here is that instead of talking about my process, I want to tell you the story about how Changing Denver came to be. And it's a love story. A love story in five podcasts. (laughs) Number one. I set out that system, I'm breaking it immediately. It's not actually a podcast, this is my radio show, my college radio show. 
I'm sure you all know those people in college who like joined every activity and got oh, really overwhelmed and their grades suffered, but they love doing all those experimental new things, trying new things. I didn't do that. I wasn't like that. It took me until junior year to join an extracurricular activity, <laughs> the college radio station. So I joined it with my best friend. I convinced him. I dragged him along. And we had a show on Saturday afternoons. It was so much fun. I'm going to play you a clip. All right, so that's two very enthusiastic amateurs. <laughs> right? I think we can all agree on that. But enthusiastic nonetheless. I was so happy to be there. Like, when you get in front of a live microphone and you're talking to an audience, I don't know how many of you have had that experience, but you get this feeling like, a, like an electricity that ripples through you. It's, at least I get that. It's a great feeling. So anyway, I love this show so much, and Lewis, he, he was game, but I really loved it, and I wanted to get more involved in the radio, and one day, they sent out this email, it was like, eh, someone had to miss their show on Thursday night, does anyone want to fill in? I said, I'm doing nothing on Thursday night, I'm, I have no other activities, yes, I want to fill in. So I went, I did the show, did it by myself, had a blast. At the end of the show, um, put on a song, and the DJ after me had wandered into the station. She was just preparing. She was getting ready to do her show. So I put it off. I, I said, hey, how do you want me to leave it? Do you want me to, what's the name of your show? I can introduce it for you. And she said, um, oh, it's so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, this is kind of an interesting person. I like this setup that she's doing. And so we chatted a bit more, and then she started her show. I walked back to my dorm thinking about her the whole way. And when I got back there, I, uh, I turned on her show, and I started listening. And her show was it was like a, a love show. It was like love advice. But on this particular night, her co-host was missing. So what happened was her parents called in. <laughs> and they just sort of had a conversation that any child would have with their parents. And I was listening in on this, and it was very endearing, obviously. It was so intimate. Uh, and I... You know, I had to go back. I walked back to the station. I had this ruse concocted. I went back in, and I pretended to be looking for a book that I had left there. I didn't leave a book. So eventually, she put on a song, came out, and said, what happened? What happened? And I said, well, I lost this book. We looked together. We chatted more. And like I said, she didn't have a co-host, so eventually, she invited me to stay and just sit in on the end of her show to make, it go, make the time go faster. It's a two-hour block. Um, and we ended up getting to know each other on the air. And uh, that was Megan. And um, two years later, after we graduated, we still lived uh, in our college town. And that brings us to podcast number two. Uh, Megan and I joined a community radio station in our neighborhood, hyper-local. Uh, it's a 50-watt amplifier, which means that only like a 10-block <laughs> by 10-block radius could get this station. For us, we basically used it as a studio so we could make a podcast and put it out. But it was a nice community, too. Anyway, so we did this show called Tome Raiders about books, bi-weekly. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Tome Raiders, the show where one of us reads a book and one of us doesn't. <laughs> Tomb Raiders is brought to you by CPR 97.5 FM and hosted by me, Paul. And me, Megan. Today is Sunday, September 14th, and we're just seeing the first touches of fall in beautiful Mount Pleasant, D.C. Oh my gosh, but I love it. It is so nice to have a little bit of Christmas in here. But also, some warmth still coming from the sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect day. Fall would be an acceptable season for me. Okay, so that's uh, that was the show we did together, Tome Raiders. 
obviously very much in love. And But also, I think you'll notice that that was a significant leap forward in terms of sophistication of broadcasting. <laughs> which is important. Um, we learned some tricks. And it was that was our salad days. That was a really great time for us. But, you know, like you do when you're young and you're just out of college, you don't really know what you're doing with your life. And so we were in D.C. We had, like, not that stable of jobs. And Megan ended up getting this job here in Denver. And her family is, lives in Colorado. So it was like, how do we, how do we turn that opportunity down? And um, for me, it was like a new, exciting adventure, but, you know, very uncertain. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and our plan was this. She was going to go move here, set up a life for us six months before I did. And that left me in Washington with six months alone in the winter. <laughs> now, without her, I couldn't do Tomb Raiders anymore, but I still had that urge to make something with audio. And that brings us, of course, to podcast number three. I'm going to talk over this because otherwise it's in very dull. Um, this is, yeah, this is the sad part. I heard some rumbling. This is going to be depressing. This is the sad one. It's called The Sounds of Washington. It was a high-concept idea. <laughs> Ambient sounds. Who makes them? Who listens to them? So I went to places where I thought had interesting sounds around the city, recorded them, and then talked to someone about it. Which was a step for me because it's an interview. You know, it's a produced interview. Do a five-minute little piece, and then ambient audio. Now, as sad as it is to listen to, when you're hearing this, which is supposed to be bird sounds, it was the winter, there were no birds, <laughs> you have to imagine me sitting alone in the woods, just with the recorder on, cold, and thinking, oh boy, I sure can't wait to go to Denver. <laughs> And that brings us to podcast number four. And that's the reason why I'm here. Podcast number four is Changing Denver. Uh, it's a show about physical spaces around Denver, how we make them and how they make us. Similar high concept to what I had done before, but much more sophisticated in terms of you know, story structures and ambition, way more ambitious. I do interviews, I do conversations. Uh, it's a monthly show, so every, every episode is about a different neighborhood around the city, like or made space, like Colfax or Five Points. And I take a relevant political or cultural lens and then find the most interesting people to talk about that neighborhood through that lens. Um, so that in, in the case of Colfax, that was, why does it have a bad reputation? And what does that mean? Like, why do people say it's the longest street in America? It's, that's insane. It doesn't mean anything. So I figured out why and what that made, to me at least. Uh, five points, gentrification. That was a great episode, still our most popular one, in case anyone's curious, wants a good place to start. Uh, Hungarian Freedom Park, I'm Hungarian, so that was an opportunity for me to find an anchor here in the city to you know, make it feel more like home for me. And that's what Changing Denver has been. It's been a process for me to get invested here and build something for myself here and show Megan that, you know, this was the right decision for us to create a life here in this new place. And so she had this new job, and I was figuring out changing Denver, and we were f feeling confident, and we had some time. So we started up something new. Sorry about that. There's a clip from changing Denver. I just want to play this for all of you. This is, um, this is something that shows how much Megan means to the show and what she means to me. Nate Conran at KGNU, Eric Peterson at Confluence Denver. This is the credits. The magnanimous Megan Ariano. The incomparable Megan Ariano. And the inspiring Megan Ariano. <laughs> and Megan Ariano. And of Megan Ariano, whose input was crucial as always. <laughs> So next time you listen to an episode, you can stay for the end. <laughs> um, and of course, like I was saying, we finally have time to do something together again, and that's podcast number five. Megan, do you remember the intro I wrote? you want to see if you can call? I've been saying it all day. I don't want to do it. I don't want to. Downtown deep dish to Pepperoni and Park Hill. <laughs> 
is the Denver Pizza Podcast. <laughs> the only show hungry enough to review every pie in Mile High. <laughs> So we're sitting here, we just got done with sexy pizza. This is <laughs> thank you, Megan. <laughs> and thank all of you tonight. That was awesome. I also love Denver pizza. Um, we're going to do some AV stuff, and then Esther is going to speak. Hi, guys. It's uh, good to be here. Um, I've never really given a talk about my creative process before, so bear with me while I read something I've prepared for you. Um, my preferred mode of self-expression is usually through some kind of visual art, music, video, performance. Um, sometimes I create experiences via happenings for other people to get involved with. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I don't always understand why I'm doing it or what it is I'm doing. It's kind of like a current that flows through me. And if I'm open enough to receive it, and as long as I don't overwhelm myself with work and listen to what it wants to express, I can interact with it. And I learn from what it wants to show me. Um, I've heard people say that being an artist or a creative is akin to channeling. Like we're opening ourselves up to a kind of collective unconscious and pulling out the relative, uh, relevant ideas. David Lynch says that ideas are like fish, and you don't make a fish, you catch the fish. Desiring an idea is like putting bait on a hook and lowering it into the water. You can catch ideas from daydreaming, you can catch ideas from places. If you think that maybe a place could conjure ideas, then you have to go out of the house and go traveling. You could be going down the street, see a reflection on a pool in the gutter, and bang, an idea will come. Who knows how it happens? I always say it's like there's a man in another room with the whole film together, but they're in puzzle parts, and he's flipping one piece at a time into me. And at first, it's very abstract. I don't have a clue. More pieces come, more ideas are caught. It starts forming a thing. And then one day, there it is. So there is, in a way, no original ideas. It's just the idea that you caught. The thing is just to be true to the idea. His description of this process really rings true for me. Um, a lot of my work has revolved around people and relationships, sometimes ritual and food, while playing with themes of transformation. That's how I got into body casting. For one, I love love. I'm endlessly curious about people's love lives and how they make it work. One day I was listening to Alan Watts talk about love, and he said something along the lines of, when someone says to you, I sincerely love you, it makes you skeptical. <laughs> but when someone says to you, I love you so much I could just eat you up, it makes you laugh. And then I had this thought, what if you could actually do that? What if you could actually eat your lover's face. <laughs> I mean, haven't you ever felt that feeling of adoration for someone that's so overpowering you, you just want to eat their face? <laughs> well, I have, and I thought it would be so great to actually be able to act on it. And I don't mean cannibalism, <laughs> because then you wouldn't get to enjoy their presence or their face beaming back at you. I wanted to create a new love ritual where people could sit down to dinner and eat each other's faces. It took me months to figure out the casting and molding process. I had never done it before. Um, so I didn't know I needed to put release cream on the eyelashes, and I accidentally ripped out all of my boyfriend's eyelashes <laughs> and eyebrows in the learning process. But uh, in the months it took me to figure out how to get that final food-safe, heat-safe, custom silicone baking face mold. Um, his eyelashes grew back, and I was also connecting the metaphorical dots and listening to the layers and the deeper meaning that was beginning to surface for me. It doesn't all come at once or make sense in the beginning. Like David Lynch says, you just have to follow the, inis the initial inspiration and see where it leads. 
In this case, it spent... Um, it led me to spending time with seven different couples who were interested in having this experience. I interviewed about I interviewed them about their relationship in my basement apartment, and I took turns doing their face molds, taking advantage of the fact that only one could talk at a time. At that time in my life, I had recently gone through a traumatic breakup, and I suffered the epiphany that every relationship I had ever had with a guy was basically a replay of the abusive relationship I had had with my mother as a child. And I knew then that I really knew nothing about healthy love. So this was my opportunity to ask others about it and offer them a ridiculous once-in-a-lifetime ritual experience in return. Um, I had a really Christian upbringing, and so when I was working on this project, kind of reminded me of the Eucharist. You eat the cracker and you drink the wine, and it represents the body and blood of Christ so that you can be more Christ-like. This ritual goes way back. Its roots lay in ancient Egyptian and Babylonian rites. Transubstantiation is all about change and transformation. It's about a metaphorical alchemical process that's referring to the natural cycle of life and death. It was at this point I started thinking about relationship differently, that it could be a space for growth and transformation. You are what you eat. That Velvet Underground song, I'll Be Your Mirror, was echoing in my mind the days during this project. I wondered about the mystery of attraction and why I tended to be attracted to those who pushed my buttons just the way my mother did. What was it I was supposed to learn from these experiences? And why was I unconsciously choosing the same experience over and over again? All of these ideas swirled around in my head like a fever during the creative process. I was basically recreating the ritual of transubstantiation, but for lovers. The lovers consume each other, and in a way, become each other. They are transformed in the process. They become a mirror for each other. The night of the dinner came. I made 14 face tamales. (laughs) Each one in the shape of a specific face, and served them with a red chili sauce. It paired really nicely with the cheap French rosé. And I thought it was great how all of my years of working in the service industry paid off for this specific project. (laughs) I also made a ritual garment for each couple to wear. It was basically a sheet with a face hole that stretched across the table under the plates and glasses towards their partner who also exhibited their face through the sheet hole as well. Face on the table, face in the sheet hole, everything else was white to show off the faces. We had a pianist playing Alan Vega-style keyboard music. Um, This project wasn't funded by anybody or held in a gallery. (laughs) Nobody really knew about it. (laughs) It was just something I really had to do. It was something I was passionate about, and I would never have had the self-realizations or the amazing personal conversations with couples that helped in my understanding of what healthy love was. Um, This project led me to create a monthly performance art for couples series that's being documented on the Redline blog. It's a platform where I can invite others to participate in at-home performances and exercises in trust, compromise, and communication. Uh, Currently, I'm in the middle of preparing a large installation coming up at Redline and shooting a stop motion in collaboration with my studio mate, who's a miniaturist. The show is called Nice Work If You Can Get It. And Daisy McGowan, the curator, has asked us to make work that addresses the topic of being an artist and how we are able to sustain our practice. Here's a bit from the the proposal I sent to her to give you an idea of what I'm doing. Quote, Going feral is thus, as I imagine it, an act of the mind, to move, to make happen, to make manifest. It is a strategy that works only if you allow yourself to be subjected to it. There is an entirely new category of fearfulness to be learned, a radical grammar to the art of living in and working with the world, a syntax that is wild and unpredictable, somewhere between a howl and a song that appears from the woods of our cultured conscience and then vanishes back into them, that cuts so much deeper than shunning the normal code of society with regard to dress, habitat, hygiene, etc., 
cuts right through the fabric of human culture, that subject-object binary on which so much of our self-certainty, self-confidence, dreams of conquest depend so that I might listen, learn, and live outside of my inherited boxes. Unquote. Uh, that's from Rough Notes to a Feral politic, uh, Poetics. Uh, my greatest resource is my imagination, and I need time to experience it. Sometimes I feel like a feral person living in a domesticated world. I exist in a feral place in my mind a lot, a wild place where anything is possible, where I can nurture my ideas, my wild hairs, and trains of thought, where I can rest from judgment, societal rules, and the workings of civilization. In order to support myself as an artist, I have to protect my time in that special place in my imagination. Time is money, they say. We all have to work to meet our basic needs. But work and money don't feed me like art does, and art doesn't necessarily pay the bills all the time. There have been times when I lived on a, in a tent, on a bike, in a shed, on a couch, in a car, as a vagabond, or just as cheaply as possible, mostly to preserve my sanity. There have also been times when I've worked three or four jobs to pay the bills with no free time to be creative or acknowledge my creative instincts. I really don't know how people can work that much and feel okay. It killed my spirit, but afterwards drove me to seek a healthier balance for myself. I've learned enough to know what to sacrifice so that I can pursue my practice um, as an artist in this upside-down world and continue to live in my feral imagination that gives life to my dreams and visions. Sometimes it feels like a crazy person's world, and other times I think I am the crazy person. But lately, it feels like a crazy person's world. (laughs) So with that in mind, I'm creating a room by mounting furniture and objects to a platform that will then be suspended upside down from the ceiling. So just imagine a room flipped upside down for a second. Underneath the flipped room is going to be a right-side-up wild desert landscape. Some large rocks, some soil, maybe cactus, sounds of birds, a relatively peaceful place. It's a landscape that's sacred to me and one I prefer to exist in, but I don't always get to. Whereas the upside-down world feels like a game with rules and obligations. Of course, I have to live in both worlds to have a healthy existence, so there's a ladder connecting the two. When you live in a society like ours that values money and status so much, it requires a bit of a feral mindset to be able to carve out the time and space you need to explore your craft. You have to let go of the fear of how you will survive and the fear of judgment and find that wild place that allows you to follow your sparks at the same time as getting your financial needs met. It requires a kind of ingenuity to be devoted to creativity and play in this world, a rearranging of values that might look crazy to the rest of the world, but it makes sense to you. It requires a bravery and a quiet trust in the creative process. I'm calling this installation, This Must Be the Place, because it is the place I like to be. I also thought it was funny to use a song title for a show that already uses a song title. My imagination was really sparked when I saw the clip from the 1951 film Royal Wedding of Fred Astaire's famous ceiling dance. If you've never seen it, he comes home and he starts singing and dancing, and the whole room begins to spin, but the camera stays perfectly in place to create the illusion that there is no gravity, and he is just dancing all over the walls and the ceiling. Of course, they created a spinning room for that scene so that choreography could be one continuous dance and not cut into sequences. I tend to prefer the old-school hands-on approach rather than the new digital answers to solving problems or creating illusions, and I think that's why I'm drawn to stop motion. It's very hands-on. So right now, I'm in the process of making one stop-motion portrait per month of someone in my community in under one minute. And I'll end this talk by showing you a few to give you an example of what they're like. Also, in my attempt to build a financially sustainable creative life, I've recently started a Patreon page for these stop-motion portraits and a big cartel for some realistic hand and finger casts that can be mounted to a wall or stuck on a fridge to remind people that it is possible to overcome their limitations by evoking the visual illusion of reaching through a wall. If you're interested, uh, feel free to ask me more about them later or catch me on social media. Um, And here's a few stop motions. This first one is my sister, and she has about 14 cats. 
and jokes about being a cat lady when she's old, and I'm like, you're already a cat lady. So this <laughs> is her uh, portrait. Anyhow, you guys, I have a lot of stop-motion stop portraits of people in my community, and they're really, really fun to make, and they're all under... Uh, one minute long. Um, my YouTube page, they're all on my YouTube page, and it's E-S-T-H-E-R Esther H-Z, and you can find my channel and watch them all if you want. They're really fun. <laughs> Sorry I didn't work. Those videos are really fun. Esther was staying with my uh, housemate, or like a person who lived in my building, and we became Facebook friends. And I would watch these cool YouTube videos that she made with like red dots going around her face. And that's why I brought her here. Um, definitely check it out. I know you guys don't work the whole time you're at your computers. Um, <laughs> Victoria, the Beacon Award winner, um, which, if you guys aren't from Lighthouse, it's a really exciting teaching honor. Um, she's next. Yeah. So I was uh, completely silly earlier, and now I'm not going to be so silly. Uh, Apologies. Um, To me, good writing is closely related to risk-taking, because deep writing means we're taking off our minds in front of each other. And when Rebecca asked me to do this, Making the Mountain, I did try to write something linear and cogent, but that was not working out. And uh, it isn't like I have a lot of spare time to come up with something like that. So I decided to do something that I have not done before, which is to write a short story. Yes, I've written short stories before, but they always sounded like the first chapter of a novel. Uh, So this is a children's story, and I usually write YA. Apologies in advance to those of you in the room who know how to write short stories. And I know there are a lot of you here. So I'm trying to model this whole thing of risk-taking. It's just that I find talking about the artistic process very challenging. And this is the best I could do. If I'm going to continue encouraging you to take off your minds in front of each other, then I need to do it too. And that's why I wrote a short story. If I can write in an unfamiliar genre and read it out loud here, then you can do anything. All right, so here's the story. Once upon a time, a young frog named Regina lived in a pond surrounded by mist. One day, Regina slid off her lily pad and swished through the water over to the muddy bank. From the ground, she took mighty leaps that lifted her high above the mist, and each time she jumped, she saw something in the distance. Regina hurried back to her lily pad and told her good friend Dylan what she'd seen. It looks like water... But it's shaped like a ribbon, and it runs like a gazelle. Dylan gave her a big friendly grin, and then he caught a fly. You're talking about the river, said a voice nearby. An ancient frog peered at Regina from the next lily pad. She didn't know him. He had a jagged white scar on his wrinkly belly and a row of dark warts on his forehead. I've seen that river too, he said, then slipped into the water and sank out of sight. Wait, Regina called. Wait, please tell me more. Who are you talking to? asked Dylan. That very old frog. Dylan looked around. Where? He was right here. Dylan shrugged. He isn't here now. Regina told her family about the river, but they rolled their eyes all the way up and then all the way down. Water that runs like a gazelle, how ridiculous. Everyone knows that water ripples when the wind rises, but it doesn't ever run like a gazelle. This water does, Regina said. Now a crowd was gathering, more and more frogs listening. And, Regina went on, when I hopped high enough to see the running water, I could feel the pearl inside my head begin to glow, and I even heard it humming a new song. 
Many frogs shook their long tongues at her and snickered. New song, one of them said. Everyone knows there's only one frog song, the one we sing every evening. Pearl, another mocked. You think you're an oyster? No, said Regina, but I do have a pearl inside my head, and so do you. When I close my eyes, I can see them. And she shut her eyes and gazed. She saw pearls gleaming, each one a different color, so shiny. However, what Regina heard were not shiny sounds. They were sneery, snorty, scoffing sounds. Ooh, jeered a whole group of frogs. She can see when she closes her eyes. Regina lifted her lids, and there in front of her sat the king of the frogs, whose name was Zorg. He carried a knife made from a dead heron's beak. If there's a pearl inside your head, maybe I should cut you open and take it out, he said. Oh, please don't hurt her, Regina's family begged. She has quite an imagination, and as you can see, it has run away with her again. Zorg puffed himself up and held the heron's beak high. He croaked loudly at Regina. Pay attention to what you're supposed to do, or I will feed you to the flamingos. All right, Regina said, quaking. I'll pay attention to catching flies. See that you do, Zorg said, and prove it by sending some of them to me. He mashed his lips together and then went back to the biggest lily pad in the pond. Regina looked at the sky. As usual, mist crawled over the muddy bank and covered the horizon. I still remember what I saw, she said to herself. The next day, she did her best to catch extra flies, but most of them busted out of reach. She also hopped until her legs ached and the webs of her feet got sore. But all she could see was gray, sloppy mist. Maybe she'd only imagined the water that rippled and ran. She wished the ancient frog would come back and talk to her, but though she looked for him, she didn't find him. Maybe she had imagined him, too. Regina's family grunted gleefully when she settled down to become a better flycatcher. They patted her head when she caught so many flies that loads of extras could be sent to Zorg, and they nodded approval each time Regina added her voice to the evening's song. Still, Regina sometimes took big leaps and searched the sky. However, as time passed, the mist only thickened. She stopped sensing a pearl inside her head, and even when she closed her eyes, no pearls beamed colors into her mind from the other frogs. Also, the little hum of a new song was now silent. One day, Regina felt quite fed up with catching flies. Why should she stick her tongue out for Zorg? Besides, a ray of sun came burning through the mist and hit her face. Regina slid off her lily pad and swished over to the muddy bank. From the ground, she took a mighty leap higher than ever before, but searing sunlight struck her eyes, and she couldn't see anything at all. She swam to her friend. I want to take a journey, she told Dylan. Maybe I'm losing my senses, but I want to find out if there's really such a thing as a river. You know what they say, said Dylan. If you leave our pond, all you will find is danger. Regina looked at her familiar lily pad and the way the water gently lapped its edge. But if I don't leave now, I never will. I'll never know if my mind is lost or found. Okay, said Dylan, I'll miss you, Regina, and I hope you come back soon. So Regina set out over land. She made no big leaps because she was saving her strength, but still her legs grew sore and her tender feet got burrs stuck in their webs. The sun sank down and then stars poked the darkness. Regina heard many slithering rustles and feared she'd be gulped by a night creature, but she hopped on. After many hours, she began to smell moisture. She must be close. She flopped ahead and then suddenly, splash, she landed in water. But this was not at all like the water she knew. Nothing like her pond back home. This water swept her up and pushed her under and rolled her over and over. Regina tried to fight it, but her legs felt like tiny twigs lost in the current, which whirled her along faster and faster. And then she heard loud, frothy gurgling up ahead. On and on through the dark, Regina tumbled until at last the current slapped her against a sharp-edged rock. She held on to that rock and crawled up its rough side to a spot on the top where she could rest, but she couldn't see a thing, not even any stars. Where had they gone? There was no light, and she felt a deep, piercing pain in her belly. Gasping, she shut her eyes and listened to the river spraying and foaming and rushing, how she wished it could grab hold of the pain she felt and carry it away. When morning broke, Regina realized she hadn't been able to see the stars when she landed the night before because the river had taken her into a cave. Now that the sun reached through the opening, light glimmered and shimmered and sparkled on the walls. Regina felt as if she were inside a giant pearl. 
which would have been wonderful, except that her belly still hurt so much. And when she looked at it, she saw a deep gash. She didn't know what to do, and so she lay on the flat surface of the rock, waiting for her belly to heal. She got hungry, but no flies flew close. She longed for the quiet green comfort of her lily pad far away. Days went by, and then one morning, above the rush of the water, Regina heard another sound. A song surrounded her, a song that rang from the walls of the cave. How I love your song, Regina said to the cave. May I sing with you? The cave didn't answer except to keep singing in tones that matched its shining walls, so Regina hummed along, and when she did, she forgot being hungry. She spent days listening and learning the cave's song. She also asked the walls many questions about what to do next, but she got no answers. She was getting too thin to stay, and the gash on her belly had turned into a dark pink scar. It was time to head home. She had to leap from rock to rock to get out of the cave and find her way back to the banks of the river. When she got on land again, she didn't recognize where she was. She had no idea which way would lead home. Sing your song, said a voice nearby, and there was the very old frog beside her, warts and all. He soon disappeared, but Regina allowed her new song to lead her all the way back to the muddy banks of the pond. Dylan came hopping toward her. Regina, he cried, I've looked for you every day, and I'm so glad to see you. Everyone feared you were eaten by a flamingo. He stared at the scar on her belly. I see you ran into some danger. What happened out there? I learned a new song, Regina said. Would you like to hear it? What about King Zorg? He might not like it, Regina said, but I still want to sing it to you. Okay, said Dylan. I would like to hear it. So she sang for her friend. Dylan grinned. That's a good song, he said. Makes me feel like I have a pearl inside my head. Maybe you do, she said, and she smiled, because even with her eyes open, she could still see his pearl glinting with friendly light. Regina's family said she looked awfully thin and stringy, and the scar on her belly was shockingly ugly, but they welcomed her with a feast of flies. She gratefully accepted. And after that, Regina saw pearls in every frog's head, beaming all manner of colors. She even saw one in Zorg's head. And those pearls sang to her. Quick Q&A. Um, we'll, so Esther and Paul, is Paul still here? Um, I don't know. Paul, Esther, do you guys want to come back up for questions? And there's Paul. All right. Um, thank you guys so much for speaking and telling your stories. Are there any questions? The audience. I just had a question about the process of the stop motion. How how does that work? Is it a is it a continuous video that you then <clears throat> segment, or how? I, I really have no experience with that at all. Um, so I don't use a, a video camera. I use a regular camera, and I pretty much just take as I take a picture, I move something. I take a picture, I move something. I take a picture, I move something. <coughs> Um, and so I'm taking, depending on the length of the video, I'm taking anywhere from 300 to like a thousand or more pictures just to get uh, 30 seconds or two minutes or three minutes, you know. Um, and then I string them all together. And in the editing process, I can take out the mistakes. I can take out, oh, that one single shot where there's a hand in the way or where the thing fell down or something, you know, take it out. And then you just line them up and you play them. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I have a question for all three of you guys about patience um, and what you guys do to cultivate that. Because all the crafts you're in involve some sense of like waiting. Like doing that video, like taking all those photos sounds terrible to me. So how do you guys, <laughs> just don't have the patience for it, how do you, each of you guys cultivate your patience? Boy, I mean, the, each episode I make takes, like, a lot of time. So it's less about patience for me. is like, the actual process is so long. It doesn't, it, it, it gets more complicated as it goes on. So, I, I don't know, it's like forced patience. I just get really excited about the 
I get really excited about what I'm doing, and I kind of don't care how long it takes or how, um, even if I don't know what I'm doing, even if I have to learn something new in order to do it, I'm so, I just get so fixated on it that I don't really think about how long it's taking. I just keep, I mean, I wake up in the morning and I'm so excited, I'm just like, I don't even want to eat breakfast, I just want to like go straight to this editing process, or I'm going to go straight to the dinner and like start setting up the table, even though it's too early. So I think for me, it's, that kind of is really driving. Um, Uh, yeah, I just realized that at any time I estimate time, I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, that's a good way to do it. Shoot yourself, Brett. Um, so where, where do you see each of your respective art forms going in the I can feel that one. Podcasting is easy. It's like going straight to the top. Right? <laughs> it's also getting more and more corporate as advertisers realize there's more money in it. So I think you're going to see in the immediate future more high production value shows. Like Gimlet is a company that's doing really high production value shows right now. They're, they got a show that released two weeks ago or three weeks ago with like Hollywood actors like Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac. And it's this an audio drama. It's awesome. Radio play, but... New, and it's yeah. really cool yeah. experimental also incredibly high budget mm-hmm. so I would say more more money <laughs> where do you see it going I feel like uh, I, I'm all over the place in my creative process it's more about the concept than the medium so it really just depends on where I'm going conceptually. Um, and I feel like I'm going to continue to explore similar themes that I always go back to. So I'm not, to be honest, I'm not really sure. Well, I, I think writers have to balance the whole thing of keeping your art and protecting it as art. And realizing that there are market forces and those need to, as much as possible, I think they need to be kept separate during the process of when, when the book's being generated, thinking about marketing is pretty, is not very helpful. And it can be a shock to have to start dealing with that after the focus has been creation. Um, so, a question for Victoria and Paul. Victoria, um, will you do um, more short stories, and where do we listen to your podcast? <laughs> uh, did you say write more short stories? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> did you enjoy it? Are you going to do more? I mean, it was enjoyable, and, and part of the reason was because it's outside what I usually do. So, I, I mean, people ask me why I write for young people, and I have my own definition of a young person. To me, a, person, it's a young person is a person of any age who wants to do and who will do new things, but they don't know the outcome, you know? An old person is a person who only wants to do things that they already know what the outcome's going to be, so it's a way to stay young, right? <laughs> podcast is available at changingdenver.com. That's the website my friend Jeremy Zornow designed. He's pro, so it looks great. But obviously it's a podcast, so it's available on wherever you get your podcasts already, like the iTunes app that comes stock on the phone, Stitcher, Overcast. You seem like such a natural. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just got to tell the world. <laughs> All right, let's do the last question. Uh, it's a two-part question for all of you, if you'd like. Um, would it affect your enjoyment of your creation if you knew you had an audience of three versus you know, 300,000? 
and the second part is your craft. Is this where you have, in your opinion, the most powerful um, voice in your life? Is this where you really have learned to express what you need to express about yourself and your, and your experience living? Uh, yeah, I'll take the second. I'll, I'll go ahead. Yes, yes. Dead, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm, I have a lot of privilege, so I have a lot of chances to express myself. But the podcast is the most personal because I made it entirely. I don't have to follow anyone else's guidelines or best practices. Uh, and the listeners and consumers thing. Um, my favorite thing is just having a conversation with someone who's listening to it and wants to address the actual ideas that I presented. So. Like if one person has that conversation with me, that's my favorite thing. I can relate to that with the um, with the audience. I think that I'm I'm really interested in having other people have experiences with me and conversations and things like that. And I think that's more satisfying, maybe than. But I've never had a big audience, so I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but with the for example, with that one piece, I didn't have a big audience, and it was, it was so exciting just to be doing it, just to be making it a reality, and and that, I think that was also mostly my, my personal choice of creative expression or voice, where I have the most powers through my art medium. a thoughtful question. <laughs> uh, to me, I mean, I have had hundreds of thousands of people read my books, and I don't think of it that way. I more think of it as one plus one. You know, it's, it's always one person. It's not 300,000 people. And in terms of the second question, uh, I actually feel more like my voice, uh, my full voice comes through during teaching more than writing. So. Thank you guys so much for 